and um, we went out to lunch and I guess Max was kind of just saying it sort of like, this would be cool, huh? And I was like, that sounds crazy. But then I got the idea in my head and I like wrote a business plan that night (laughs) and sent it to him. And he was like, whoa, I, I don't know how serious I was. I was like, sorry, man, we're doing this. What does it really take to become successful as a writer or artist? There are a lot of destructive myths out there about what a creative career is supposed to look like. We're told we shouldn't care about worldly success or money. We're told that if we're good enough, everything would magically fall into place. That's a lie. And it keeps us struggling, baffled, and hungry for any shred of information that might shed light on how to keep making the work we love. That's why I get any two artists or writers or any creatives really together in a room And it's a foregone conclusion that the conversation will turn to money and the nitty-gritty reality of being a professional creative. I'm cartoonist and creative business coach Jessica Abel. In my own life, those studio visit back-channel conversations with other artists where we share our insights and hacks, anxieties and red flags, have been critical to any success I've achieved. And now, I'm bringing that conversation to you. This is The Autonomous Creative. I first met Jenna Weiss-Berman in 2012, right when I started work on Out on the Wire, my comic book about storytelling techniques in narrative long-form radio and podcasting. Jenna was a student at the Transom Story Workshop, which is a training program for the best of the best of audio producers. Getting to know Jenna back then was so useful and so great because like her, I was also very much in the learning phase of storytelling, and it was formative for me to see that journey from her point of view. A year or two later, I was still working on Out on the Wire, and I ran into Jenna again, then working for The Moth. Soon after that, I noticed that she was working with Lena Dunham and was launching the podcast department at BuzzFeed. Finally, in 2016, she made the leap and founded her own immediately successful podcast company, Pineapple Street Media, now Pineapple Street Studios. I was so excited to see Jenna doing all that so fast, and I have a ton of questions for her. So we'll dig into how it all happened behind the scenes right after this. This episode of The Autonomous Creative is brought to you by The Creative Engine. I talk to working creative people all the time, both on the show and in our membership, The Autonomous Creative Collective, and one of the biggest challenges they struggle with is procrastination. To most people, it feels like it's just a permanent character flaw like they were born that way and doomed to suffer. But that's just absolutely untrue. Art is hard, yes, and we will all feel resistance to using that much cognitive energy on anything. But procrastination typically stems from specific root causes that are totally fixable. If your creative work is essential to you and who you are and your life, yet you still struggle with procrastination and it just feels like this is crazy, I want to invite you to check out the free Creative Engine Masterclass. This class will help you overcome your resistance and put your priorities first before you're derailed by everything else. The Creative Engine is a complete, simple, straightforward, and powerful framework that will help you pinpoint where your creative process breaks down and highlight exactly how to fix it. In it, you'll master the four essential phases of the creative process you need to produce awesome work reliably and you're probably skipping at least one, possibly two. You'll learn how to predict and avoid the pitfalls that derail you time and time again. And you'll overcome self-sabotage, take back control, and keep moving even when things get really challenging. This class is totally free, and you will get immediate deep clarity into what makes your creative life tick. So stop procrastinating and start finishing your most important creative projects by harnessing the power of your own creative engine at jessicaable.com slash engine. That's J-E-S-S-I-C-A-A-B-E-L dot com slash engine. Now let's start the show. Jenna, welcome. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. So good to so good to see you. It's been years. Yes. It has. It has been years. I think the last time we literally saw each other was at the moth, like, I don't know, eight years ago or something like that. So it's oh, been wow. a while. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And speaking of crazy, let's just tell the folks what was happening the last 10 minutes. (laughs) So usually I, well, just, I, I, like, I I always say when we're doing these things, I'm like, everybody, you know, if you can come in like 15 minutes early, we can have sort of a pre-chat and like, we'll do tech and stuff. And 
you came in at plenty early and then you're like, I have a, I'm in a meeting still. Can I go and like come back? And I was like, that's fine. And I'm having tech difficulties and freaking out on my end for my own reasons. So the life of a CEO, I guess, right? I guess so. If that's, if that's what I'm called these days. Um, yeah, it's, I know, no, we've like, I was just looking, we had a staff meeting the other day and I realized that two years ago we were 18 full-time people and I saw in our staff meeting that there were 48 people. <laughs> I was like, oh my God. what the fuck is happening here? Oh Sorry. I'm, I'm, a, I'm bad at not cursing, but um, I'll try. <laughs> we're, we're, pretty, um, we're pretty loose about that around here. So feel free. <laughs> yeah. Okay, good. But yeah. I think we've added like 30 people in the past two years. It's just, oh, that's amazing. It is. I'm it, very tired. Yeah. <laughs> and you also have what a four-year-old. A five-year-old, and I'm actually I'm pregnant. I'm, I'm oh my god! To, well, congratulations, <laughs> and Thank oh my you. god, so <laughs> weird, a weird uh, thing happening in my life. So that's supposed to be born in a couple months. So um, lots going on. Want to just keep it, keep it going, keep it going. Yeah, my own my own company. I now have like I don't know four or five people. It's a part-time, you know, people fitting together, working with me, and it feels already so huge and different than it did a few years ago. I cannot imagine the yeah, it, the difference it's for you it's in, intense what, i think five we years? Made it, yeah it's been five years at pineapple i think we made a lot of these like classic startup-y mistakes of like oh like my co-founder and i can just manage everyone we don't need any like any infrastructure beyond just like us and producers and editors and we were really wrong about that and i think it's been a time of just like realizing like oh our staff really needs actual support from actual managers and we need like a layer of people who are mm-hmm. you know who are helping to organize the place and um manager respect feel... yeah i mean they're in, and so we have like an incredible crew now of like six amazing managers who have made our whole staff just feel way more respected and appreciated and i'm really i i, I couldn't love them more so uh, but yeah, I mean, it, growing too quickly is like one of these like classic crazy problems. And we we're trying to fix some of our mistakes and move forward with more good infrastructure, basically. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is sort of jumping ahead, but I'm betting that in 2012, you can't you could not have imagined that your problem would be growing too quickly. <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. Yeah. So. I mean, yeah, 2012 was like, I was in like a, I was taking like a podcast class to learn how to be a podcaster and then went to the moth. And I mean, I had been in public radio before that too, I guess sort of always have been. I mean, I graduated college in 2005 and I started working at StoryCorps shortly after that. Then I was, I was actually producing audiobooks for a while and then went back into public radio but certainly I just sort of assumed that I would always be like a broke public radio producer for the rest of my life. And I was, I was fine with that. And I didn't, I was not anticipating this like podcast boom that has been happening that feels just wild. So yeah, it's been, yeah. And then when we, you know, we started Pineapple about five years ago and it was like my friend Max and I, and we thought we'd make a couple shows. He, hosts some shows and I produce shows. So we were like, I'll produce some shows. He'll host some, we'll do some branded podcasts, make some money. And then it just like totally the whole industry kind of exploded. (laughs) And um, we have done a lot Mm -hmm. more than just like two, you know, we thought maybe we'd do like three shows and have like two or three employees after five years. And it's not the case. It's very different. That's not the case. Yeah. Um, Well, tell me a little bit about what uh, what is it like to be in your position now? I mean, we'll talk a little bit about what it was like along the way also, but like you are the head of a company. You're in charge of some stuff and you have at least five people directly reporting to you who then oversee 40 other people or whatever. What does your day look like? What does it look like to be that person who's in charge of creating a whole bunch of amazing storytelling I mean, are you making any of it? Does it still feel yeah, like you're question. in it? <laughs> yeah. I mean, if I'm being totally honest, I do I do sometimes like miss being more creatively involved, though I still make as much time for that as possible. You know, we're working on a show right now that like I'm just 
really excited about. And I like made the trailer for it the other day on Hindenburg, the audio software. And you know, like kind of wrote a script for it. And so sometimes I get to still, that's like my, that's like my really like happy time. <laughs> it's like, um, I get to still kind of make stuff because I did start off as a producer and not, you know, as a business person. But a lot of my day now is it's managing people and projects and deadlines and legal. That's a big part of my job. It's the, I actually think contracts are fun, but most people will um, fight me on that, but I sort of, I have, I've actually had a lot more fun with the business and legal stuff than I thought I would. And I, yeah, I manage a lot of the kind of like business, like what, what money and projects are coming in and how can they sustain us? And, and then I also handle a lot of like our show development. So like I, I'm a big part of like choosing what shows we're going to do and then kind of starting to make them happen, you know, logistically, contractually, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, and then it, you know, it, it's like such a changing industry that my job is sort of changing all the time. So like a big part of podcasting now is like selling content to platforms. So it's like, we work with Spotify and Apple and Amazon and all these different places where we kind of, um, you know, we'll make something, we'll sell it, we'll, sort of like co-market it you know it's like a it's it's are like you a big, selling it or are you licensing it we're selling a lot of these things so we sell them but we stay attached to like derivatives and things like that so it derivatives are like the tv and film versions of things which mm -hmm. is another huge thing that's changed in the industry is that like these things are being turned into <laughs> into tv shows so we have two shows that have come out and three that are in development right now based on our podcast. So then I become part of that process. And it's actually really fun to have like a, to be sitting and having like kind of like a famous director pitch you on what they think your podcast should be as a movie. <laughs> um, not something I thought I would, uh, would be a part of my life, but yeah. So a lot of my job is making these kind of business deals and connections. And I don't know, I think it's kind of fun. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, I think that that's one of the, the big misconceptions about creatives is that we're not going to be good at that stuff and not going to care. Yeah, but totally. I totally enjoy that kind of stuff. I think it's it depends on the individual, obviously, but there's nothing about being creative that rules you out from being really quite good at thinking about money and strategy and making deals and yeah. You know, well, you actually things. I think you actually have to be very creative to like go with the flow of this industry, which is changing really quickly and to think and rethink deal structures and that sort of thing. I don't know. I, I think it's fun. That's it's a lot of what I do. And I mean, I think also like a lot of my training was, it was kind of, I mean, I, I had a lot of like full-time jobs, but I was always hustling very hard. So I would always like have a bunch of freelance work as well. And so we sort of we set pineapple as a business up similarly to, I think how a freelancer, a freelance audio producer would set up their company, which is like, we had stuff that we knew was really going to pay the bills, you know, that was like totally fine to do. And maybe not the thing we were most passionate about. And then we had the stuff that we were really passionate about that wasn't necessarily going to pay the bills, but that we were just like excited to be working on and have our, you know, have our names on and that sort of thing. And that, you know, that was sort of exactly how I had been doing freelancing where I was like, okay, I'll do this podcast for this big brand. And then I'll do this podcast for this weird magazine. That's barely going to pay me. And so I'll be like creatively and financially sustained, but not from the same project. It's kind of from two different things. And so we did that with pineapple and we totally bootstrapped the place, which I think was different than a lot of I think then kind of all the other major podcast companies that took a lot of investment, we never did that because we just felt like we had a pretty good business model going from the beginning, probably had a lot more confidence than we, than made any sense to anyone. <laughs> but I just was like, if I can do this as one person, maybe I can do it, you know, as 20 people with this, with a similar model. And it weird. For sure. And just to, to be clear, when you're saying bootstrapping, what you're talking about is that you didn't take any investment money that you you basically ran this out of your own bank account. It's like the, the money came in for something and you use that to pay people and you to build the company out. And a lot of other companies in the startup e culture are like looking for VC money, you know, yeah. and they're trying to bring stuff on. And this is an entirely different 
it's, that's been an entirely different dynamic. I mean, one of the things I think that it probably did for you is you're able to pick whatever you want to do. Like you don't have anybody telling you what to do. And I know that you, your degree is in politics, you know, you're from public radio and all this stuff. Is, is there a political aspect to this? And I don't mean in a red blue way, but in a, you know, things you want to see in the world. Definitely. I mean, to, to kind of like how we choose projects and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. That, well, the fact yeah. that you're not funded by somebody means you don't answer to them, right? So you're able to control <laughs> nice. what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah, we really do. And I mean, full disclosure, we have sold the company. So it's not, it's like, it's not actually my company anymore, but we were very careful when selling the company that we would continue to have creative control. And we, um, and we really have, and we're actually able to do like so much more stuff than we ever wanted to do. But yeah, I mean, what we, the shows that we chose were always really, it was always really important that we could decide what those were and that we could say like, yeah, this doesn't make us any money. We still really want to do it. And it's really important to us. I mean, in our first year, we did a show with Janet Mock, who's a really amazing black trans activist. And that's not necessarily the kind of show that I'm going to sign up for because it's going to like fill my bank account. (laughs) It really isn't. Mm -hmm. Um, But, but it's the kind of thing that I'm really excited to do. And so, I mean, my view was that if we had like taken a bunch of money from venture capitalists, like we would have to sort of tell people every single move we were making. And I mean, I don't know, you know, like I don't totally, I don't totally know what I'm talking about with it. I just knew that for me, like I really wanted and my business partner too, Max Linsky, who's great. Um, we just wanted to be really in control of what we did, what we said yes to, what we said no to. Also, yeah, what we said no to was a big part of it too. You know, like there have been a lot of brands that have come to us wanting branded podcasts and we've said yes to some of them and no to some of them. And I wanted to be able to to be the person to make those decisions pretty much. So For I sure. Guess it was, I guess it was kind of, you could say that's political. Yeah. I mean, in the sense that you get to, you know, when you make those decisions, that overall forms the voice of Pineapple Street. You know, Pineapple Street becomes this, you know, becomes the the place where you can do all these things. There's a quote that I read in an article about you that that was really great, which is, when we started Pineapple, we wanted people to say no to us. We wanted to ask for things that were so crazy and come up with story ideas that were so crazy that people would be like, no, that's crazy. And it hasn't happened yet. We keep <laughs> asking people to do crazy shit with us. And they keep saying yes. <laughs> I guess so. I don't even remember saying that. But yeah, I mean, we've like gone, you know, we've gone to our favorite journalists and been like, here's a crazy idea of something we could do together. And we've, you know, we've gone to our favorite like publications like the New York Times and and then like, here's, here's a wild idea. And it happens. I think it's because this industry is so kind of like new and blossoming and people don't, people are actually like really excited when you just sort of like come to them with crazy ideas because they don't necessarily know how it's going to work. I mean, we get to be like, we're like major podcast experts by default because so few people <laughs> know how, how this industry works basically. So, so yeah, we have, we try to make a bunch of crazy ideas happen and, and it's fun. Yeah. I mean, it, I didn't know that you hadn't taken investor money, um, but it makes a lot of sense to me that you would, that that would give you a ton of freedom in, in sort of self-directing the way you went. But it also might've led to some of the problems you referred to early on, just kind of growing pains that you didn't have experienced investor types around going like, yeah, maybe not that way. Maybe hire some managers sooner rather than later. Like there was nobody kind of there or was there anybody? Were there people there who were helping you figure that out? Not really, but I don't know if investors would have been the people because I just feel like if they're, you know, when you're an investor in a company, your goal is kind of maximum revenue and profit. And Mm. that doesn't always, that doesn't always, it's not always in line with like building a real infrastructure for a place, you know? Mm -hmm. So I don't know. And I'm not, I don't want to judge anyone who takes money. I totally get it. The people who took venture capital made crazy amounts of money selling their podcast companies. So, you know, if that's what, if that was the goal, then it really worked out for some people. Uh, And Mm -hmm. also like, I think that there were other places that got to experiment more. Like we were, we were, 
anxious all the time. You know, I mean, I, I started pineapple a month before my first kid was born and I was like, I, I think I can do this, but I don't know. I mean, there were certainly a mo many months where I was using my savings account to pay the staff, you know? So I think, um, probably taking money is, uh, it eases the mind and the anxiety in a lot of ways that I didn't have and also leads to more creative freedom because you don't have to think of like how everything can, you know, how this thing makes money in order to make this thing happen. You can sort of just build something up with this like funny money for a while and then hope that it, mm. you know, succeeds. But I don't know. I think like in my but brain- again, It's a stress test, right? That you, like yeah. if you are doing this with your savings account, you know, and, and sometimes with a savings account, sometimes with money coming in from clients, like mm -hmm. the sta the stakes are high. You got to get it right. Yeah. And so uh, getting through that to the other side and saying like, we're still growing and you were able to sell last year, I guess, something like that to another company. Right. And yeah. have it be an asset that was worth buying. I mean, that's amazing. That's such a success story. Yeah. And the stakes being high, actually, it's, interesting that I think you're you're totally right that like that motivated us so much like I am very motivated by like shit I had to pay people from my savings account this month you know I'm like well, what am I gonna do to make that not happen again next month so I did find it and like we were just like I just remember like early days we would like get a project that was like sort of a competitive project that other people were trying to get and we would just like it was like winning a championship like sports game. <laughs> we would just like jump up and down and like scream and it was really exciting. And so, so yeah, so I actually found like having, I find having to make money motivating <laughs> to me personally, for sure. Yeah. Well, it's a concrete marker of you did something that had an effect. So that's pretty nice. Yeah. It worked out. Yeah. So how did, how do you feel like you did go through the process of learning to run a business? I mean, you didn't learn this in school. So how did that, and, and so you're coming into this as a producer, you have really high level technical skills and storytelling skills and a great ear and all this stuff. How do you transition into something else? After um, working in public radio for a while, I started a podcast department at BuzzFeed. And that was a place that it was it was really different than public radio because I was going into a place where podcasting had not been a part of anything they had done before. And, you know, they'd done a few kind of audio experiments, but I sort of had to like build a business within a business in a way. So I thought I was going to be there to produce some shows, but then I was also meeting with the sales team, like figuring out how to sell this stuff. I was meeting with the legal team, figuring out like what the contracts should look like for posts and that sort of thing. Um, and I was like working with engineers to build a studio. And, um, and I think I got to a point in there where I was, and I had like a wonderful time there. We, we created this show another round that I was super proud of. And still listen to old episodes of it's just really fun and funny and great and if you haven't heard it i highly recommend it but what i realized after a couple of years there was like oh like i'm building a business and i could do that myself <laughs> like i've learned i've actually learned so much stuff about you know about what these things cost and what these things made in money and how the money would be made and um and so I think I got some confidence there about like building a business. I mean, I was just, I was always interested in money. And even when I was like making $40,000 a year in shitty public radio jobs, I was still always like making sure to like save and have a retirement account. And I was like kind of, you know, obsessed with financial planning for myself. <laughs> um, and that was weirdly very helpful um, in building a business was just sort of like, okay, so like this money will be allocated toward rent, you know, it's like, well, this money will be allocated toward my office rent. And really, like I, I budgeted my whole life and I kind of started to do that with the business. So I guess. It's yeah, just, no, it seems like a pretty, process. it's like a fairly smooth yeah. thing, but then there has to be a moment too, where you were at BuzzFeed and as you said, you really liked it and it was going well. And then you and your friend are like, let's start a company. Like, 
what is that moment when you make that pivot to go, we're just going to, you know, and also somebody who's cautious, right? So you, you're talking about being uh, your risk taker creatively, your risk taker in terms of like, you're going to be in public radio. That's a risk period, right? But mm-hmm. also you were relatively cautious about your own money and making sure that you were safe and taking care of kind of like your edges, you know? Yeah. So this is a huge leap, especially when you're about to have a baby. It was was a huge leap. Yeah. I mean, how does that happen? Like, what is that moment when you go, it's time, let's do it. Totally. Well, I think like one thing was like, I think I started to realize, you know, people are like, how did you figure out business? And it's like, I don't think anyone knows how to do business. I think you can go to business school for years and years and you don't like learn how to, I mean, I don't know what they learn, probably some really useful stuff, but I don't know that, that people are learning like about how to like really like balance checkbook or whatever. So I think um, there are just these skills that you can kind of teach yourself to build these things. And I felt like I'd been building those kind of in my personal life. But so, I mean, we started the company basically because my friend Max, who also, he ran a company called Longform and he said like, hey, like podcasting seems, he had a podcast with Longform that's still around and successful, really good podcast. He was like, podcasting seems like it's really going places. And I keep hearing from people who want podcasts made. And I was like, I keep hearing from people. So we were hearing from institutions like the New York Times and from like the Hillary Clinton campaign and from Lena Dunham, who I had done a show with at BuzzFeed and I went to college with her and she wanted to do something independently. And um, we heard from big ad agencies. Like we just both sort of, it was this thing that we knew how to do that a lot of people didn't know how to do and there seemed to be a major need for it all of a sudden and there had not been um there were sort of you know there were places like Gimlet these networks that had started up but there was not a place that was doing high level production um with partners so we really saw a a space for ourselves where we could do you know we where we could really do like like high level, like really good production with people and not necessarily need to like own the shows. And, um, and so that was kind of what we talked about was like, wouldn't it be cool if we just, if we could start saying yes to some of this stuff. And, um, we went out to lunch and I guess Max was kind of just saying it sort of like, this would be cool, huh? And I was like, that sounds crazy. But then I got the idea in my head and, I like wrote a business plan that night (laughs) and sent it to him. And he was like, Whoa, I I don't know how serious I was. I was like, sorry, man, we're doing this. Um, So that's sort of how it started. It was just, I mean, and I wasn't going to start until I had a bunch of money committed, but we sort of like budgeted out, like, here's what we think we could make from these people who've been coming to us. And we figured out like how to make enough money in the first six months to a year to hire a couple of staff to pay ourselves decently when we weren't using our savings accounts. Um, and yeah, so that's kind of, it sort of just, he put this idea in my head and I took it a lot more seriously than he had been taking it. And then we made the thing and then we just kept, it was just like a crazy it was, I think, like, it, once people heard we were doing this, just so many people, brands, organizations, magazines just started being like, you guys are the only place that's doing this um, and started coming to us. Thankfully, a bunch of other people sort of, like, started their own pi- versions of Pineapple, and we helped build up a bunch of other companies by just, like, giving them, like, we're like, here, here are five projects that we can't do right now. But, yeah, it went a lot better than we than we had budget or or there was way more work than we could actually take on. Yeah. It sounds like it really took on its own momentum super fast. Like just immediately was like, this is, it just filled a need so quickly, but I do have a few questions. Number one, where did you go to lunch? Can I go there? (laughs) I know we went to a really good Korean restaurant on 26th street in Manhattan. I don't remember the name right now, but I'll, I'll get it for you. Okay, because I think that may have played a part in all of this inspiration, right? Really inspired us. (laughs) Um, And number two, like when you got home, and I, I mean, I completely understand this energy. Like, I am also somebody who 
I am really enjoying running a business and I never thought I was going to do that. And mm-hmm. it's a completely different business at a different scale, but same thing. I get it. Right. So I understand that energy of like, oh my God, I got to write down this plan. This I have to make this ha- thing happen. And, but I also know you really care about your family and family time and all that stuff. You of course been working zillions of hours as a producer. And so there's, you know, you've been dealing with this for a long time, but then in that month or whatever, between starting the company and having your baby, are there moments in there where you're like, how, how do I, I mean, can you pay for paternal, I mean, uh, parental leave or like what, how does that all fit together for you? I mean, when was the moment as you're working through this business plan, you're like, and this is how my life fits into this. Um, <laughs> well, my, like my wife would say that I didn't think enough about how my <laughs> life would fit into this, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I had like this weird confidence that, that it would work out and I'm not a, I'm not a very confident person. I don't have a lot of confidence in a lot of things. I mean, I'm fine. I'm okay, <laughs> but I just always, you do okay. I'm totally fine. I think I'm probably more confident than the average person. But this was just something I just, I was like, I know that I know that I can do this. And I'd never felt Mm -hmm. so strongly about really anything in my life. I know that that's like a terrible answer. Just like, I don't know, I knew I could do it. But, you know, and we figured out like a structure where I mean, you know, we had like, my reasons. Yeah, totally. I mean, like, yeah, yeah, we had reasons. And I felt like I could actually like do better financially eventually than I had ever done in a public radio job. That's for sure. Um, which those jobs have actually, they're paying more now. And I think a lot of that is because of the competition in these, with these podcasting jobs. So I'm excited anytime we can, you know, influence a public radio station to pay their people more money. Cause if they don't, we'll, take them to our company. <laughs> but yeah, I, I don't know. I, 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 just... yeah, no, I mean, I, I think it's a perfectly good answer. I, I'm drilling into this because that's kind of what I'm obsessed with is this, you know, the you balance. have gone through several big pivots in your life, but this was the biggest one. This is a moment when you took off the training wheels and, you know, the show's called autonomous creative. You became autonomous, right? You're like, I'm making my own decisions for myself. I don't have a boss. You know, nobody else is making this, uh, you know, obviously you have a partner and both on the family and the business side, and you're making decisions in concert with them, but you have what you need at that moment to make that decision and feel great about it. You did the plan, you have the potential future clients and you're going to lock them in before you actually tell anybody you're quitting your job. You know, you, you have, and you had the skills that you'd built, built up here, here, and here, and you could identify those things. That's kind of what I'm trying to get at is like, there are things that happened and that you did in your life that gave you a reasonable expectation that this was going to work. And I think that's what made you feel so great about it. Like you knew that. I guess so. Yeah. I, I, there are things that had happened and I had like a career that I felt like was, it was, I was doing the things I wanted to do. I think the difference with this job was I hadn't really taken a career risk before was the truth. I mean, I had taken like smaller risks while always knowing that I could go back to other jobs if I wanted to basically. Um, so I had like, you know, I had left, I left the moth to create this show at NPR called the hidden brain. And that wasn't a full-time job. It was like a summer where I had a great time with the host. We made like eight pilot episodes and it was a lot of fun. But like, even when I got out of college, I mean, I said I started at StoryCorps. That's not totally true. What I did was I went and I was a collector, a financial collector at a corporate law firm. So I would like call people like huge corporate clients and say, you owe us money. Please pay us now. Okay. Um, that is a key detail here. You had that as your first job out of school. Okay, yeah, I was really it. good at it. Like, that, that is a life skill that is serving it you is. well. I got a lot of money. I mean, I got, I didn't make a lot of money. I made like $32,000, but I made the firm a lot of money because I would call these places that that had like 10 year old bills that no one had really cared about and got them to pay. But that was like, I couldn't afford to take any risks. Like I, my family does fine, but I wasn't, I'm not like a kid whose parents are going to give them, (laughs) like, I don't, I don't have family resources to sustain me for 
any amount of time. Um, so I sort of had to quickly like figure out how to make some money. And then what I actually did was that I got, I got an internship at StoryCorps and I convinced the law job to let me go to StoryCorps in the mornings for four hours and then come do the law job for eight hours starting at like one in the afternoon and going until like 9 p.m. So I was tired and, you know, it was intense. But I think I don't remember why I was even where how I even started with that. But oh, yeah, just like the risk. It was like I wasn't very open to risk. So this was like the first really major risk I'd ever taken. And I call it a risk, but I didn't think of it as a risk. I guess like it on paper, it looks like a risk. I'm leaving my like well, you know, decently paid job right before my kid is born to start a company. But I just, again, I just like felt like I can do this. Like I've learned the skills over the past, whatever it was, 10, 10 years of my career to like Mm -hmm. make this happen. Yeah. I mean, it makes a lot of sense to me. I just, um, and, but I, I really identify with that feeling that you have to cover yourself. You know, you have to make sure that you're you're not just going to be hanging out like a trust fund kid painting in a loft in Soho because your parents are paying for it. It's like you, yeah. you know, you had to make sure all this stuff worked, not just on paper, but in reality that you could pay your bills, you're going to be safe and saving money and all those kinds of things. And I think that's a huge piece of this mentality that made it okay for you. I was just going to say, I think also like, I mean, there are a lot of podcast companies starting now that are like business guys <laughs> that are starting podcast company. I had also like, I had been a producer for a ton of years and I had been at a ton of places where I was like, if I ever have a company, like I, I want to do that. I don't want to do that. I want to treat people like that. I don't want to treat people like that. So I had kind of learned a ton. I mean, like when I was at StoryCorps, I think I was making $12 a week as an intern. <laughs> Luckily I had this other job, but um, then it became really important to me at Pineapple that we pay our interns and we pay them, you know, well. And so we paid our interns before we paid ourselves. And so I had like, I had sort of like learned all of these like values along the way that I wanted. And I've failed in a million ways. I don't want to pretend that I that like I run a perfect company at all. But I think having all of that like behind me and this kind of like track record of being, you know, like first like starting very low, climbing up a little bit, I had an idea of what I wanted a place to be. And, and, and that was an important part of, of starting the thing too. Absolutely. I mean, you need to have that vision in order to create a company culture. And clearly you have a really strong company culture because the people who are with you are, have been with you a long time and they keep wanting to work there. And so that's the best sign possible, you know, is to have people who are happy. Um, well, we're, and it's the most, lucky. yeah, well, it's the best feeling, I think, as uh, somebody who's able to, make a job for people who are then get to do something awesome and be paid. <laughs> that's, it's nice. that's so cool. <laughs> it's very good to be able to like pay people good salaries to do good work. So I know you're deeply committed to your creative work. And yet when it comes time to make the thing, it's like you short circuit. Your inner critic comes roaring out and shuts you down. You find your attention dragged off by some other shiny new object. You can't stop feeling guilty and that you should be focusing on paid work. Your clients, your children, friends, boss, parents constantly demand your attention. Here's the thing, there is nothing wrong with you. There's just a breakdown somewhere in your creative engine and you can repair it. I wanna invite you to join me for the free Creative Engine Masterclass where you'll learn which tactics will backfire when you're trying to get traction on self-generated creative projects and what to do instead. The four essential phases of the creative process you must implement to produce awesome work reliably, and you're probably skipping at least one. The good news hidden in your long history of valiant efforts to make your creative life work, how to diagnose what's off track and keep moving on your work, even when things get really challenging, and the secret to how to predict and avoid the pitfalls that derail you time and time again. This class is totally free and you will get immediate, deep clarity into what makes your creative life tick and the specific next step to take to harness the power of your own creative engine. So stop procrastinating and start finishing 
your most important creative projects when you join the Creative Engine Masterclass at jessicaabel.com slash engine. That's J-E-S-S-I-C-A-A-B-E-L dot com slash engine. Okay, back to the show. One thing that, that jumped out at me from your story about working at the law firm, doing collections and stuff, is the um, that your way of solving the problem of how am I going to take this internship was like, I'll work 12 hours a day. Is that yeah. a pattern for you? It was. <laughs> it had to stop being. I mean, look, I know that people are really into like work-life balance. I get it. I know. I, I think like self-care really cool for some people um <laughs> it <laughs> it was i mean it's really like it's not it's not for me i wish that it was a little more honestly but like i had stuff i wanted to do i had these a lot of the full-time jobs paid so terribly that like i needed to pick up side work and i don't want to encourage you know, like, I don't want to encourage people to like work constantly at all. For me, I wanted experience on lots of different kinds of shows. And I wanted to like, get my name out there. Like there was a point where I was like, I was working at the moth, but I was also like making podcasts for the believer and making, you know, like working on like three other podcasts with people and my name started to get on all these shows. And and, you know, I was working, like doing a little stuff at the New Yorker, a little stuff at WNYC. Like I was, there was a time when I was just kind of doing all these things. And it really helped me to have my name, you know, on a bunch of podcasts and to really like be building up a resume. And that's, that's what I wanted to do. And that's what was, that's what felt exciting to me. Um, and so it was just like a choice I made again, not encouraging people to have like no work life balance. Um, but for a while that was just, I just like, I was, I was excited by the work and it felt like that was my life. And it's actually really shifted. <laughs> I mean, when you have a kid, it sort of has to shift. And in COVID, it's really shifted again, because I am like working from home and with my family so much more than I was. I don't, yeah, I don't have regrets about it, but it was something I needed to change. And I'm glad that I have better work-life balance now. Say, And then, it, and that's like something that we really try to implement here, where it's like, we don't want anyone here at pineapple to like have pride and working until two in the morning. And I think there are a mm -hmm. lot of, you know, that's like a big, that's like a major culture in a lot of places is like, yeah, I worked till two last night. And then it's like, I don't, I'm not proud of you. If you did that, that's a structural problem at my company. If that happens that I very much need to fix. And so like, we, we really try to, yeah, not have like a culture of like pride in being overworked. But I yeah, for work. sure. But what is there a difference, though, between having a company culture, you know, working at a company where the culture is, oh, we are totally overworked and doing what you were doing, which is like choosing your projects and going around and picking up a, a lot more than maybe was super healthy. But like you were, were enjoying it and you were picking like you were doing it. Nobody's making you do this. Yeah. No one's making me Was do there it, a difference but I or. Well, I definitely did a lot of work that wasn't fun and that I knew wasn't fun, but that I knew could pay my bills while I did the work that was fun, basically. Um, yeah, but I'm talking so, about like when you're saying about picking, you know, you're working with WNYC and, you know, The New yeah. Yorker and Believer, blah, blah, blah. Those are, that's a period of time when you must have just been working like a crazy number of hours. But it's not that an employer was saying, Jenna, you must do this thing. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm also somebody who works real hard and, and sometimes I feel like there's shade thrown about, <laughs> yeah. you know, more self-care and like, why don't you take more breaks and things at myself as well as, you know, from mm -hmm. other people. And also same um, feeling where when my kids were born, things changed, they had to change and got more reasonable and I'm glad they are. Mm -hmm. But I'm also not that sorry the way I used to work, you know, I yeah. no, kind of was I'm fun. not either. Yeah, I think, and that's a good point you're making. It's like, if it's a personal choice, then it's it's fine. Like I worked at a lot of, you know, nine to five jobs that weren't forcing me to do a lot more work than that. And then I was picking up other things. So yeah, I think like the problems arise when you're at a place where you're getting paid to work 40 hours a week and you're doing 70 or whatever, mm -hmm. um, which- For sure. We, 
you know, we work hard to try to make that not happen here. It doesn't always work out, but it is a, it's a major goal. Well, I think that's a, and that's a very important goal. And I think, yeah, for sure. Like as somebody who's in charge of other people, it's our responsibility to like, make sure that that culture gets set up properly. But yeah, I think that working, you know, you were obviously inspired to do not, maybe not the nine to fivers that were paying your bills, but to do these other projects, it was, you know, really, um, creatively super important to you as well as professionally getting your name out there. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, we have a couple of great questions that I want to get to. So let's see. David asks, do TV and film derivatives come to you as part of packages and pitches, or do you prefer to seek those out yourself? Oh, that's an interesting question. I mean, the way that we usually structure our deals is that a host writer will come to us with an idea, and then we make that idea with them, and then we work with them to sell, you know, to basically like sell the podcast and sell the TV and film rights don't know if that totally answers the question, but it's a really, we try to make it a really collaborative process where we're all like, I mean, a lot of the time we like, we just, we let hosts decide what they want to do with the derivatives and that sort of thing. And, and we're all like in on the process and we all get pitched by, you know, directors and actors and writers and it's fun. Are you actively going out and developing those pitches then? You have like somebody who's bringing, bringing your work or pineapples, properties out into the Hollywood yeah. sphere. Yeah, we have an agent um, who does that. But most of what we're doing is like when we work with a place like a Spotify or an Amazon, we then become, you know, they sort of, they mostly lead the process and mm-hmm. we're all a part of deciding where the thing is going to go together. But it kind of, it's usually led by those platforms who have, who have bought the content, which is kind of nice. Like I they mean, have their own department who's yeah, and it's, doing that. Yeah, exactly. And it's great because we don't have that department and we, you know, I mean, and we've been, we've been asked to come on to things as producers. Um, we end up a lot of time being like executive producers, not doing a ton of stuff on them, but I would love to, to be, to like sign on to be a producer on one of these things one day. I'm just also trying to run a business, um, which makes it hard, but <laughs> But I think that that part of it sounds fun. Like, you know, seeing seeing the thing all the way through would be something that I would love to do more of. Yeah, that media transformation, I think, would be really interesting. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, okay, Matt asks, how, uh, how have your explorations of form changed both with changes in podcasting trends and changes in audience attention spans? Oh, form. I mean, I guess... Like we think a lot about how long episodes are um, and we look a lot at where people drop off. And we were, I mean, an amazing thing with podcasts is that so many people get to the very end of a podcast, which is like very rare for any other form of media. Like people rarely get to the end of an article, a video. Um, But we've also found that like there is a bit of a drop off after around 22 minutes less now, but that was the average commute time. It is different since COVID hit um, because people aren't really commuting, but we did start to shape a lot of our shows, not totally around 22 minutes, but it did feel like if, you know, if you do like an hour long show, the chances aren't amazing that somebody is going to get to the very end. I mean, it's still like 80% get to the end, but I'd rather have 98% get to the end of a 30 minute episode. So that's definitely something that we think about. Um, and we're also, we also think a lot about like distribution strategy. We started this show recently called the 11th, um, also known as pineapple magazine. That's, uh, a really, it's cool. I really recommend it. Go listen to the 11th, but it's a thing where we drop it once a month. And will sometimes it'll be four episodes, sometimes it'll be nine, sometimes it'll be one. And we were worried that like, we, we had this idea that that might not work um, because people want weekly shows, but it's actually been really successful. People seem really into it. And the goal with that, a big part of that was we get a lot of incredible pitches and most of what we do is these kind of limited run eight episode series 
and we get a lot of amazing pitches for things that are that would be like a great three episodes and so we wanted Mm -hmm. we really like wanted a place where um where we could do those basically do those three episode series yeah again it's we've put one out so far um and we're putting one out in two days and everything we have coming up is really awesome i love it it's experimental and cool and once a month so i yeah subscribe but yeah um, that's amazing it sounds kind of like it's like the literary journal version of a podcast as opposed to a novel yeah and that's exactly how we're thinking of it thank you well (laughs) (laughs) that should be our i should put that in our literature um, okay, one final question that I'm sure is going to appeal to a lot of people here. Dean says, I want to get into podcasting. Tons of desire, no idea how to businessize it. Thoughts for a beginner? Well, Dean, I think that there are like a lot of ways to get into podcasting. But there are, you know, it's like, I think like um, getting into podcasting is kind of broad. Like you can, I think that there are like, editor tracks and um, all sorts of ways. But I always think that the very best way to start learning, I know this sounds a little crazy, but just start making something like Hindenburg is a really good audio editing software. It costs $99. Other than that, you can record into your phone, start using that software. Like the way that I really started learning how to actually like build a podcast was I just like took an interview with my dad and I about nothing and like a Grace Jones track and put it into, into some audio editing software and just like played with it basically. And was like, Oh, that's how, that's how I make the music go up, you know? And that's really the way to do it. Like, I, I don't think, and yeah. And in terms of making money for me, it was about like learning those skills. And then I literally, this was years ago, but I wrote something on Facebook where I was like, I know I have these skills now. I know how to do this thing. Anybody want a podcast? And I like heard from random people from my life. I heard from someone who worked at Facebook who I'd gone to college with and I ended up, ended up making three episodes of a Facebook podcast like a million years ago. Um, I heard from my friend at the Believer magazine and I ended up creating a show with him over there. So there are certainly opportunities. I mean, a bummer thing is that like, if you want to work at a podcast company, it often does start with an internship, but these places are now paying. Most places are paying between 20 and $25 an hour. It's not at the most amazing rate, but it's above minimum wage. (laughs) Um, And if you can balance that with, you know, a couple of eventual freelance things and maybe something else, um, you can start to make it happen. Yes, for sure. And I think this this um, lesson of just start making something and even if what you're making is not a fully edited narrative podcast, but you want to do an interview podcast, you want to do any kind of podcast at all, just make the thing and that's how you're going to get better at it. There's actually, I did an interview with Stephanie Fu for my podcast, Out on the Wire, my previous podcast that was all about this and getting started. And she had her first podcast was, I want to get on This American Life. Oh my God. And then she did. (laughs) And she gave a CD of it to Ira Glass at a live show. (gasps) Whoa. That is very brave. Oh, yeah. But you never listened to it. So that's not why she got the job, by the way. (laughs) Oh, that's fascinating. I mean, there are all sorts of ways that people have gotten gotten in. Like, I mean, Mm -hmm. a lot of like, like, sometimes we'll get an email from somebody that I find really impressive. We have somebody here who's now a senior editor, but she wrote to us years ago and was like, I'm a corporate lawyer. I don't want to be doing what I'm doing. I like what you're doing. Would you ever like it? She just wrote a really impressive email that really like got us and got what we were doing. And we were like, and we were like, okay, why don't you like come intern here? And now she's, you know, one of our top editors here. So people get in, in weird ways. Like, I don't know, Amy O'Leary was somebody who used to work at this American life. And she literally knocked on their door and said, um, if you let me sit in on your editorial meetings, I will do free transcription for you in my free time. (laughs) And she ended up becoming a really amazing producer over there. So there are these weird ways in that don't always work. I get a lot of emails from people that are like, I want a job and I 
if it's a busy day, I just never respond. It, it, I try to make time for people if they want to talk about how to break into the industry. But um, yeah, but it's... But if it's really interesting, possible. you're going to remember, right? Definitely. Like if somebody writes a really interesting email, if you don't answer it then, maybe you'll run into them later and you're still going to yeah. remember. I, I believe that for sure. Totally. All right, we have one last question. We're going to run over by a couple minutes here, but um, this is a good one from Andrea who says, it seems like all the biggest podcasts are now made by all the same companies and they're all working together to get maximum exposure. I'm a former public radio reporter turned pod- podcast producer living out, of, out in Utah. What's your advice about finding the right partners that will help reach a bigger audience? It's really hard. Marketing shows is the hardest part of this entire thing. And like, even with us, I mean, a big part of why we sell our shows to bigger platforms is because they have real marketing, you know, apparatuses that we don't have. Um, And so you're totally right. And it is a bummer. It's like now you see the top 20 podcasts on Apple and it's like the same companies over and over with massive Mm -hmm. marketing and, you know, promotion budgets. So I think that I like I'm not going to have like an easier grade answer. It's not a simple thing, but there are a couple things that people can do. Like a thing that that I was doing at the beginning was like if I had friends making podcasts, we would like cross promote each other. Um, So even if you have like a podcast that, you know, 20 people are listening to, if your friend also has a podcast that 20 people are listening to, maybe your friend can talk about your show and some of those 20 listeners can come to your can come to your show. And I think that like there's a ton when we talk about networking, I don't think that networking is just like going to Ira Glass and asking him for a job. I think so much of networking (laughs) is thinking about like who who are like your friends and your community that are making podcasts that you could do some kind of interesting swap with. Maybe it's that you're interviewing each other and playing clips or um, whatever it is. But there are a lot of much more organic ways to grow these things. I mean, and there are definitely examples of shows that are totally independent that have done that. Call Your Girlfriend is kind of a classic example. They have well over a hundred thousand listeners and they grew very organically by, you know, being hustling really hard, being on their friends shows, building up Instagram followings. And, uh, there's another one forever 35 that's doing really well. They have like a big Facebook community. There's who weekly, which is, if I'm being honest, the only show that I always listen to, it's about minor celebrity gossip. (laughs) Um, and it's really funny and great, but they, also like they they just hustled so they do live shows and they get on all of their friends podcasts and um yeah there's not there isn't like a simple way to uh market or monetize these it's very very slow growth and it takes a ton of patience but if the show is really good and fun people start to come to it i mean i think that there are Men, there are so many millions of podcasts now. There's something like three three or four million podcasts. I don't know. Last year it was two million. It just keeps growing. Um, and 1% of them make any money. So that's very, it's discouraging. But I think you, it's also important to think about your goals. I always think like if, you know, if somebody has a great show about bread making and you can get like a hundred hardcore bread makers to listen to the show and be really passionate about it. Maybe that's success. You know, I think it's about, it's, it's also about defining success for what makes sense to you. Yeah. 100% for sure. Okay. That was so great. Thank you so much for being with us today. It has been a pleasure and an honor. How can people find out more about um, pineapple? Um, well, we have a website, pineapple.fm. All of mm-hmm. our shows are listed there. And uh, I guess that's how you find out about it. <laughs> so we should go and listen to, is it The 11 or 11? It's called The 11th. The, like, the 11th. Yeah, exactly. Okay. That's a good one. Um, we have a new show that just launched that I love called 912. It's technically about 9-11, but it's about so much more. And it's beautifully, like, poetically done. I think it's fantastic. And we have a really fun show called Back Issue that's kind of like a pop culture show. We, we have a lot, of, a lot of fun shows that and a lot of series. Like, we did a series with Ronan Farrow that was really fascinating. We did one called Wind of Change that 
I think is really amazing about whether or not the CIA wrote a huge hit pop song. So they're easy to get through because they're like, you know, usually it's six to nine episodes and it's not a forever commitment, but uh, yeah, fun stuff in there. Awesome. We will definitely check those out. Jenna, thank you again for being here with us today. It's been so much fun and I hope we get to talk to each other sooner than eight years from now. Me too. Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for joining us today for The Autonomous Creative. Our show is produced by Matt Madden. Our production coordinator is Lucina Boyhandian. And our production assistant is Rhiannon Sunday. Music is by Matt Madden. And I'm your host, Jessica Abel. You can find all our takeaways, as well as any links and extras we mentioned today, plus transcripts, in the show notes. Find everything you need at acpod.show. If you enjoyed this episode, I hope you'll subscribe, and it would help us immensely if you would take a second and pop over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and review. It just takes a few seconds, but it's actually a huge help to us and to our guests to get this podcast suggested to new listeners. We appreciate your help so much, and we'll see you next time on The Autonomous Creative.